Hello everyone and welcome back to the Northeast Law Review podcast. Today we are speaking with Craig McKenzie about his career as a solicitor advocate in criminal law and his podcast, The Trial Advocates Playbook. Hi Craig, thanks for speaking with us today. Hi Scarlett, thanks for having me. Um, did you want to just take a moment to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, well I'm Craig McKenzie. Uh, in my professional life I spend my time protecting the rights of individuals and um, companies that have been investigated or prosecuted by the state. Um, in my personal life, I'm a husband and father to two young girls. Um, I'm a solicitor. I specialise in crime and regulatory matters, predominantly in the Northwest, um, but I do operate on a national basis. Uh, my firm is called Forbes Solicitors. It's a large um, full-service law firm with offices. I think we've got about 11 offices all over the place um, now. So, yeah, I'm a, a solicitor advocate. Um, I enjoy a life of crime and uh, regulatory type cases. Do you want to explain to the listeners kind of what a solicitor advocate is? Because it might be a bit new to some people who've perhaps only heard of like either the, a solicitor or a barrister as practice routes. Yeah, what, what a solicitor advocate is, is um, a solicitor that has the same rights of audience as a barrister. So you can essentially do um, both jobs, so to speak. So um to become a solicitor advocate, you need to do an extra qualification, um, essentially, but it allows me to provide clients a sort of cradle to grave service. I can um, attend police stations with them. I can represent them through the magistrate's court and also represent them at the Crown Court, even the Court of Appeal, um, if necessary. So it allows you to uh, do everything that both a solicitor and a barrister can do. That's great. Thank you for um, clarifying that for us. Um, so first of all, I just wanted to ask you about your education, because I know that you did a scientific degree, was it, at uni? Um, yeah. So what was your kind of decision with that? Was that Did you always know you were going to go into the law? No, not really. I, I mean, I suppose um, my, my pathway into the law was, was quite an unusual one. When I was at school... Um, finishing high school, becoming a lawyer wasn't really on my radar, so to speak. It was, I was good at science, maths, PE. I was into um, sports and athletics in quite a big way. So I'd never really considered it even going into the law. Um, and the, the sort of environment I was in, I, I, as you can probably tell by the accent, is um, I'm not from... Um, you know what I mean the, the, the south or I grew up in the east end of Glasgow I went to a comprehensive school um, the, the area I grew up in was some would say working class the reality is it's probably a bit deprived in, in certain ways there's a lot of crime poverty um, but so so becoming a lawyer wasn't really on the radar um, and I was probably an unlikely candidate for, for law school. 
in the sense that I didn't go to a private school. I didn't attend Oxbridge. Um, don't get me wrong, I'd have loved to have benefited from such an education, uh, but that wasn't my fate. But um, I was bright enough to get into university and I decided um, to, to study science, um, forensic and biomolecular science, because that's what I was probably best at at school and I chose forensics because I think I was watching a lot of things on TV like CSI Miami and I envisaged um, myself going around solving crimes and uh, I was pretty naive at 18 I think um, so I went I went and did that and it wasn't really until the second year of my degree we had to do a module in law and it was it was the, the law of evidence um, and it was a barrister who taught that module and he was really engaging brilliant lecturer and I think something just clicked um, I really enjoyed um, the, the module and the, the science degree was pretty difficult I was dealing with microbiology um, DNA um, so it's some pretty tough stuff to get your head around. Um, but with the law, you had the facts, you had the law, you applied one to the other, and it just clicked for me. I knew that in terms of science, there was always sort of people that were going to be better than that than me. Um, I was never going to be the next Einstein or Stephen Hawkins or anything like that, but something really clicked. And I think what sealed the deal was at the end of that module, we had to attend court and it was Liverpool Crown Court that we went to to, to watch a trial um, and it was watching the barristers really and the trial and first of all I couldn't believe that you know I mean you could do something like that for a job and get paid and that <laughs> to do that for a living um, but I just thought that's what I want to do I went um, all in and, and, and pursued that at the time um, probably quite naively. I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into, to, to, to be honest. I just thought, right, that's what I want to do. I'm going to do that. Um, and I think I took a massive risk in hindsight. Um, it was probably a, a terrible business decision because as I was coming up to finishing my degree, I had managed, um, God knows how, but I'd managed to get a job as a DNA analyst um, and it was they were quite hard to come by any sort of job in forensics and um, a lot of people in my course would have given the right arm to, to get that position um, but I'd also been applied for and been accepted on what was called the CPE at the time that's the conversion course I'm not sure what they call it now is it the GDL or something like that yeah um, and so I had a big decision to make because I was a student who was skin, who had a job that was paying quite well, that I could, um, you know, I could pursue a career in forensics, or I could opt for another four years or so, um, with no guarantee of a training contract or pupillage. Um, so it's probably at the time a big risk and a terrible business decision, but I decided just to go with, I suppose, my heart instead of my head, um, and so that's how I ended up really pursuing uh, a legal career. It was something I, I fell into by 
go into this like the, the this module on the on the law of evidence and going to watch a trial. No, um, I'm doing an evidence module. I'm in third year at the moment, and we yeah. do, they recommend. Well, they don't recommend, but they say if you're interested in doing the bar or doing anything that student would like criminal courts um, to take this module, and I'm really liking it. It's really difficult. Um, yeah but I'm really enjoying it. And I think as well, going to court, I think there's something that's so, I remember the first time that I went and it, I was amazed just watching the barristers cross-examine the witness. And, you know, you'd be convinced at the start of the trial that the, the defendant had done nothing wrong and you're his examination in chief. And then as soon as the cross-examination comes out, it's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... As and I suppose I'm very lucky to be able to um, to do this for a living because it is an interesting and fascinating job and um, I know there's a lot of negativity surrounding pursuing a career, particularly um, in criminal law at, at the moment. There's a lot of uh, people being steered in other directions for various reasons, but it is probably the most fun you could have in the law and it's probably the most interesting area of law I would say uh, I suppose I am biased but uh, uh, yeah. yeah I mean I we all think it's the most interesting I feel like criminal law is just the one we always look forward to definitely um so going off of that was it when you did um the sorry the conversion course uh, was it then that you decided you wanted to do criminal or did you always know or well I, I think uh, it was always the goal to, to go into criminal law yeah. it's tied in well with the background in forensics. It sort of complemented uh, each other. But I mean, even back then, I was getting people saying to me, oh, criminal law, it's a bit effy. You might want to go into something a bit more lucrative. And um, I suppose I did consider, I spent some time doing some clinical negligence work, some civil litigation. Um, I had a a couple of weeks where I thought I was going to go into intellectual property. Um, but no, it always came back to um, criminal law. So the really the, the only area that really fascinated um, me and I knew myself from the degree in that it, I'm the sort of person if I'm interested in something I can do well at it. Um, Whereas if I'm bored, I'll do just enough to scrape through. And um, and that was reflected in my marks throughout <laughs> university all, all the way through. So um, I, th I suppose I just thought you're a long time dead and um, you might as well do something you, you enjoy while you're here. And so I decided to, uh, despite what everyone was telling me, uh, go into crime. So once you'd done your conversion course, what came next? Did you apply for a training contract um, or um, did you do the um, solicitor training course first? What I did um, was because by this point, I just um, I did the CPE full time over a year and it was quite expensive at the time. I think I was juggling a few credit cards and, uh, and whatnot to pay for it. I decided I, need to, I needed to earn some money. So I did the LPC part-time uh, whilst working full-time as well. So I did the LPC over two years 
Um, and luckily I managed to get a training contract about halfway through the LPC. So I started my training contract about six months before I finished the course and got some time back to, to cow. Um, I mean, at the time I chose the LPC over the, the bar course just based on statistics, really. I thought I'd have more chance of um, getting a training contract than getting a pupillage. Um, and I knew that you can always convert one to the other once, once you qualify anyway. So uh, that, that's what I decided. Um, I think that that's a struggle that a lot of law students will identify the choice of the bar or the training contract because I think it is just so attractive, the idea that you can obviously not easily but fall more easily into a training contract um so again then moving on to your career kind of the choice to then take your advocacy rights um I honestly don't really know much about it so I've done something that I'm really interested in so I'd love to hear your kind of opinions on it generally um yeah I mean for, for me it was sort of a natural progression um I suppose I, I started I qualified into crime and then I moved to the firm that I'm at now probably about two years qualified. And at the time, um, I moved into, it was quite a large criminal law department. Well, it was one of the largest in the country. And it was very, uh, because it was so large and dealing with a lot of legal aid work, it was very specialised in the sense you'd have lawyers that go to the police station, you'd have lawyers that deal with first appearances at the magistrate's court. And then you'd have, uh, trial advocates that would deal with all the trials in the magistrate's court. And that's what I did when I came to this firm. And for about five years or so, that's all I did, day in, day out, trial after trial in the magistrate's court. Um, and I didn't even prepare the trials. We had a team of paralegals preparing everything. I was meeting clients for the first time on the day of trial. It was just... Um, it was fun, but it was quite intense. And I suppose getting higher rights was it was a natural progression. I mean, if you play, um, if you're playing football in the first division, you want to, to have a goal in the Premiership, sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, I, I did the higher rights course, and um, it, it's a good course. It's over quite a few days. You have to pass a um, an exam. It's a three hour exam and then you have to do an advocacy assessment when you're at a trial you're cross-examining um i did the um higher rights course with a company called altior which um i would recommend they, they were very good and there's a chap uh, a welsh chap called um oh, what's it called now roy morgan who's the, the lecturer on it he's very good very well known uh, solicitor advocate um, but yeah, it's a, it's a good course and um, yeah, it was just a natural sort of progression and I would like to, to do more, uh, you know, I mean, higher court advocacy, but it's at the moment, it doesn't pay particularly well. So firms are, are keen to have you doing other things, but I do try and get up there and get in as much as I can. Um, I mean, it's... In criminal law, you, you see a lot of movement between solicitor, barrister. A lot of the barristers I see at court were once solicitors and they've, they've transferred. Some of the solicitors were barristers. They've transferred to be solicitors. So there is 
especially in crime, uh, that overlap because in other areas of law, you don't really conduct a lot of advocacy, whereas in criminal law from day one, you're on your feet conducting advocacy. So there is that overlap um, there. So I think it's for a criminal lawyer, um, if you enjoy doing trials, um, it's a natural progression. You're going to end up doing higher rights at some stage. So would you ever consider some point in the future go moving to the bar going for the more self-employed style work um, as opposed to more like salary base that you get from a solicitor advocate it, it would depend at the moment definitely not because i, I know what some the conditions that some of the barristers in uh, the, the criminal sphere are experiencing and um especially at the junior end of the criminal bar, it, it's tough. It's, it's very tough to make ends meet. Um, I mean, in a few years at the more senior end, it's, it might be something I consider because I, I do enjoy the advocacy side of the job more than anything else. Um, but at the moment, I, I mean, I'm quite happy doing what I do. And uh, I, I mean, I get to see it all from all angles and deal with all aspects of the case, which... I, I do enjoy, but yeah, I mean, 10 years down the line, who knows? Yeah. Um, you said earlier that you had, um, when you were in the magistrate's court, was it that you had paralegals kind of doing the preparation work of your trials? Is that still the case now, or do you, you kind of start it, to finish with it now? Um, it's different now in the sense that back then, public funding was, was a bit different with, with legal aid, and you got paid. Um, really the more work you did on a, a file the more you got paid it's a bit different now because you get fixed fees so I suppose now we've got less paralegals um, doing the work and a lot of the lawyers are doing the work of paralegals and lawyers <laughs> you know what I mean um, but we, we, we still do I mean on my team we've got about five um, paralegals at the moment but um, we, we had a lot more 10 years ago mm. <laughs> Do you think that you're, have you seen that there's been a particular benefit of clients having that kind of, having you from start to end, as you said, from cradle to grave? Um, I mean, yeah, with particular clients, um, it can uh, be a huge benefit in the sense that you get to build that rapport and that sort of relationship of trust. Um, some of the people that I represent um, are extremely um, distrusting of people in authority, the state. Sometimes they see solicitors as, as a part of that. And to be able to spend time with someone at a police station when they're at the lowest of the low um, and then see the case all the way through uh, to, to the higher courts, you, you do have that relationship, that um trust there so if I turn around and, and say to Joe Bloggs I don't think you should be doing that I think you should be doing this he's more likely to, to take that on board than had I just met him um, a few weeks before the trial um, so, so there is a huge benefit there and there's also a benefit in the sense that you get to know the case in, in a lot more detail um, if I was just practising as a barrister at the Crown Court, I, I might get a, a simple case the night before and I'm reading through the papers. I've never met the client before. Um, 
so, so you do get to know the ins and outs of a case in, in more detail. I think there is a benefit to that. Yeah. Definitely. I um I always think it seems like such a kind of satisfying way to do it because you really get to see the you know beginning to end, like you say. Um this is a very open-ended question, but do you have any particular cases that have kind of stood out to you or maybe your first kind of time standing up as an advocate that you would want to talk about or anything like that? I mean, I've dealt with, as you can imagine, a lot of cases, um, a lot of interesting cases, but I suppose there is one that for a number of reasons, I probably reflect on more than, than, than others. And it's it's not a recent case. It's um, a case that I dealt with sort of straddling between being a trainee solicitor and a qualified solicitor. Um, it was a case that it was a big case um, in the sense that at the time it was the sort of biggest counterfeit currency case that the City of London Police had ever dealt with. I think they'd seized about £10 million in counterfeit notes and um, my office at the time was full of it was when they still served evidence in paper format. So I had boxes and boxes, floor to ceiling, uh, barely enough space to uh, do any work on my desk. So it was a big case, a lot of covert surveillance. Um, and I had my training principal at the time, I think, had a lot more faith in me than I had myself because he gave me that, that case. Um, and it took a couple of years to see it through from the police station to the Crown Court, and we ended up at, at the, the Old Bailey, uh, of all places, in the end. Um, but, 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 yeah, that, that was a, a case that stands out to me for a number of reasons, and it was a father and son that I was representing, and they were, I suppose, on the sort of lower end of the um, scale in terms of the, the overall operation. It was a multi-handed um, conspiracy that was charged and there was probably 20 or 30 defendants from all over the country. Um, and I had the father and son, and in a nutshell, they were accused of going to London, picking up the counterfeit notes, taking them up north and distributing um, up there. And we started off, I think all the defendants bar a handful had pleaded not guilty. And we got to the day of trial and it was going to be a trial, but probably about six or eight week trial um, at Croydon, Crown Court, of all places. And slowly but surely, on the day of trial, people start changing their pleas. So guilty pleas start going in um, at various stages. And it got to the stage where everyone had pleaded guilty apart from my two clients, father and son. And the prosecution at the time was a very senior um, prosecution barrister who was also a part-time judge uh, prosecuting the case. And we did effectively um, a, a deal, so to speak, that the father would plead guilty uh, to the conspiracy, he was back to rights on the evidence. They had it, they had it all tied up, and the son would walk. Um, they would drop the, the, the offence in relation to the son, and so that's what we did. And 
we'd advised client to expect about two and a half years because it was at the lowest end um, of the, the operation. And so we went into court, guilty plea was entered, and the judge um, slammed him over five years. Um, so um, as you can imagine, I think I was about, I just qualified then, about 25, 26. Uh, clients kicking off in the dock, being dragged down by security, barristers red-faced, this is not what we agreed. And um, so I went down with counsel to see a client in, in the cells. And what happened next was that the barrister um, took the unusual step. He went back up into court and asked the judge to be recalled. Um, and now this is something that doesn't normally happen. Usually, if you've got an issue with the sentence, as a process, you appeal, it takes time, there's procedures. But this barrister, he asked for the judge to be recalled and essentially with the help of the prosecution barrister as well, who was on board, uh, persuaded the judge then and there that he got it wrong. Um, and they did it in a very, um, a very sensitive way as you can imagine, judges don't like being told they've got it wrong. Um, but they did it in a very good way. And actually, the judge then and there reduced it to about 26, 27 months. And so one of the reasons that case stands out at me, I mean, a lot of the times advocates, you're told that you've got to be fearless, you've got to... Very rarely you see, uh, see that in practice. Um, very few advocates would be bold and brave enough to recall a judge into court and say, look, you've got it wrong. Let's resolve this now without taking it to the, the, the appeal courts. Um, so I do reflect on that quite a lot. And I've tried to, um, you know what I mean? I've tried to throughout the years practice in that sort of way where you, you're not scared to, to stand up and say, no, that's wrong. I think that this is the sentence that you should have imposed. Now, another, the other reason that case stands out to me is because as part of the so-called deal um, that we did, the, the police had initially raided the client's home address and there was a safe and there was a large quantity of cash in that safe. As part of the deal, we, we said that was all legitimate money. He had a cash business and, um, and he was going to get that money back for his family. So all was well until after the case, the City of London Police decided that they were not going to um, honour that agreement. They reneged on it and then they took separate um, proceedings under the Proceeds of Crime Act to basically forfeit and keep that money. Um, so I think it was Westminster Magistrates Court that ended up in, and at the time, there was no public funding available um, to represent him in those proceedings, which are the, the class of civil proceedings, not criminal, because it's against the money and not the, the, the individual. And so it went to Westminster Magistrates Court. He wasn't represented, but I did send a letter outlining what had been agreed. I told them that this was wrong. That, you know, I mean, you can't go back on representations that have been made by the Crown 
um, in, in the Crown Court. But of course, as um, magistrates' courts often do, they ignored all that and they kept the cash. So what we then did was we appealed that decision and it ended up at the Old Bailey. And I don't know if you've ever been down to have a look at the Old Bailey. This was the first time I'd ever set foot in that court, but it's obviously a court with a, a lot of history. It's um, It was an experience in itself just being there, but with the same barrister, we then spent three days arguing uh, the, the case that this was an abusive process. Um, and an abusive process is, it's an illegal argument that can, if something's so unfair um, and so contrary to, to, to justice, um, sometimes the court can step in and stay proceedings and overturn what the prosecution have done. So we spent three days arguing at the Old Bailey that this was an abusive process. And, and ultimately, that's what the, um, the, the High Court judge and the two magistrates who were sitting um, decided and family got the money back. Um, and I reflect on that because sometimes in this job, you, you are up against it. Sometimes you feel that, um, that the state has a huge advantage, but it shows you that if you do persist and um, you dig your heels and you keep going at it, you can get, get the right outcome. And I mean, I think the barrister and myself appeared for those three days pro bono. So I don't think there was any funding in place. And um, so we didn't get paid for it, but it was more out of principle than, um, than anything else. So, um, so yeah, that, that's a case that I suppose sticks in my mind and I do think back on it quite a lot for, for those reasons. No, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Sorry. Um, I was wondering, do you do a lot of submission-based advocacy? Uh, for crime, you'll be doing a lot of witness handling-based Crown Court yeah. trials, magistrates trials. Yeah. Do you, have you ever, like, how much submission-based things do you find yourself doing and how do you feel about it? Because I think I I definitely prefer the witness handling side. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose um, you, you do a lot, a lot of applications um, now, like you'll have bad character applications, hearsay applications, and you'll have to submit a form and a skeleton argument. And I think traditionally, um, the way we dealt with those applications in the criminal side is we would keep it very brief and do most of the arguing on a feet in court. But there is, uh, I think, a bit of a sea change where judges, particularly the magistrates court, that sometimes they're deciding these things without even a hearing, so they're deciding it on the papers. So you have to, um, rather than just put the bare bones, you have to put everything into it um, in certain cases. So, so there is that, but I mean, in terms of the difference between criminal and civil, litigation is criminal is still in the main you know what I mean focused on the, the advocacy it's, it's what you, you argue in court or a civil a lot of things is dealt with um, by, by way of submissions on the papers um, but yeah it's a bit of a mixed bag at the moment and uh, I can see it's going more down that route of um, 
especially in the lower courts of dealing with things without having a hearing based on written submissions, which it's not my um, idea of, of justice necessarily, but that's the way things are going. Um, yeah, just really interesting discussions, to be honest, to hear, because, again, not really something that I know a lot about, but I think it's really interesting to learn. Um, I did have a question. I know you're based in the north, aren't you? Yeah. Um, kind of, I guess a lot of people have said to me that it's all you have to go to London, London's the place to be. And I know that you said a lot about going to the Old Bailey and things like that. Um, did you ever contemplate going to London or are you very um, um, staying here? To, to, to be honest, I never really fancied living in or around London. Mm. Uh, it's obviously very expensive. There's a lot of people and um, it, it's not something I considered. Um, I mean, in, in criminal law, if you're operating at a certain level, you will get cases all over the country. Mm. Uh, a lot of cases in London. We do now have a London office that I can go and see clients and if necessary. So I do spend a lot of time traveling up and down, but uh, for, for personal reasons, really, I wouldn't want to live in London. I think um, you got a lot, you get a lot more bang for your buck up north. And um, that's, you know, I mean, I married a Preston lass and uh, my kids are, are up here. So it's not something that's appealing to me as such. Um, but yeah, I can see the draw because there's a lot, probably a lot more opportunities um, in London. Yeah, I was speaking to a couple of criminal barristers um, yesterday and um, I think she was she was back up in the north to do her, with her tenancy, but she'd done her pupillage in mm -hmm. uh, London. She said it was just amazing. You'd be at like four or five courts a day. She was like, it was absolute madness. You, yeah. you like just didn't stop. Um, but it's, I think there's always, there is that kind of pressure, I think, to try and go to London because it's like, it seems mm -hmm. like that's exciting. That's where everything happens. There's like a big like graduate scene in London. And the, yeah. as I said, the legal scene is massive as well. But I think it's nice. I'm not looking to practice in London, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I'm looking, to, I'd like to spend at some point of my life there, potentially people, if that's an option for me. But yeah. I think there's a lot of draw to the north and I, I, I quite like it. So Yeah, there really is. I think studying here, it's just great, isn't it? Like it's just such a nice atmosphere, I think. Um, just yeah, to I mean, London's probably one of the places that if I ever did... Um, you know what I mean, in my past, considered going and walking in London, it would have been sort of right out of university, you know what I mean, before I was yeah. settling down, having a family and, and things like that, it'd probably be good to do it for a few years and then you know I mean? yeah. move somewhere a bit quieter. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to move on to speak about your podcast, because obviously that's what we are, that's what we're doing today. Um, basically just why what inspired you to go with the podcast um i suppose it was uh, i started listening to, to quite a few podcasts and um there wasn't really that much in terms of what i was interested in like the advocacy side of it there was a few advocacy podcasts which i'd listened to some of which i found quite sort of straight laced and you know, i just 
um, decided, well, what, why don't I do a podcast and all of barristers and all of uh, advocates, let's uh, get something together. And I think I probably went into it quite naively because I thought, well, well how hard could it be? I'll just uh, get a few guests on a record. And I think I announced I was doing a podcast without actually understanding what I needed to do to, uh, to set one up. But, uh, but yeah, so I decided, you know what I mean? Um, and what interests me is you get some advocates who are just a cut above the rest. And, you know what I mean? You get your good advocates, but then you get your really great advocates who can, you know what I mean? They can turn the call, you know what I mean? Based on the, the speeches and stuff. And I, I just wanted to... Um, spend some time with these people, uh, find out really how they do what they do and try to uh, get some tips and uh, initially for myself, but um, obviously it's nice to share uh, with everyone else uh, this. And so uh, it's still early days. I mean, I've, I probably started, started it about 10 months ago. Um, I've interviewed about five guests so far. I've got a couple that I've still that I've interviewed, but I've not had the time to uh, do all the editing work and stuff to release yeah. it. And it's been a, it's been a learning curve because, as you'll know yourself, it's not just you record something and then all of a sudden release it. There's the editing. There's you have to think about things like S search engine optimization. How are you going to get it out? How are you going to market it? What directories are you going to get it in? How are you you going to do that? So. I think I did go into it a bit naively, but it has, I have enjoyed it. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a work in progress, but uh, I'm enjoying doing it. How, how have you guys enjoyed? Well, your experience reflects a lot of mine. Um, I signed up the podcast, this is its second year of running. And so I've been on it since it started. I saw sit with one other person who's now graduated um and we signed up um we were just told we were going to be editors um I thought I'll give it a go loads I reckon loads of people will apply so I probably won't guess because I don't have much experience um I don't think anyone else applied apart from the two of us so we got it um we were both like have you done this before have you done anything other than listen to podcasts no and so (laughs) And we were, we were very lucky, we were given essentially free reign, um, almost free reign with what we wanted to do with it really. And yeah. when we were coming up with ideas, we thought, oh, it'd be great to just get loads of guests on and talk about their route to um, the profession. We've had lots of academics on from the law school, but we have also mm-hmm. had you and we've had um, lots of students do guest episodes as well if they're looking to contribute so it's been an amazing opportunity I love doing it it's a really nice way to do a bit of learning outside of your degree you kind of get Mm. to learn about new like different career paths and like different areas of academia in law and yeah, yeah, I've really, I've really enjoyed the two years I've been doing it. It's been absolutely fantastic for me. I mean, I completely agree. I just, when I came, I was just like, right, I'm going to use this as a way to talk to as many different people as I can because I just want to learn things off them. And then I thought, I sort of went on LinkedIn and I was like, right, who who seems interesting on here that we could speak to? And then I listened to your podcast and I thought, yeah, we'll try and get him on. And if he replies and you, um, and you did, and we're very, very grateful. So um, it's just, I think it's great. I think obviously the editing and that side of it is, 
more complicated but it is just a great thing to yeah. do definitely yeah it's a, it's a good way to network really and um you know i mean some of the the guests i've had on, on mine I'm, I'm still in contact now i'm doing cases with some of them now so it's yeah. uh, it's a good way to uh to network and especially i try to target well i try to target like um i go after who you know i mean who's at the top of the game and um i think my next step is i'm i'm looking at a few people in the states canada Australia as well so I'm targeting the trial the big trial lawyers that uh, mm. I'm interested in hopefully some other people will be interested in hearing from yeah. definitely well I think that's that's the great thing about being able to do things on zoom and things is that you can get people mm. from all across the world um yeah. and it's, you've not got to try and get them to a talk or get them like in person you can just just log in and do it online and it's mm-hmm. quick it's quick and it means that you can get so many amazing people on mm-hmm. yeah. yeah oh this is i've enjoyed it and uh, i plan to keep it going mm-hmm. see where it goes um i did have a question for you off of that um so how do you find these people is it basically just from having worked with them in the past or because i know you've had lots of different qcs on obviously big names kind of how do you get them um it's a bit of a mixture i tend to um just think who do i want to uh speak to for an hour or so and Mm. um sort of target them and i'll either message them or pick up a phone and speak to the clerk or try and speak to them um so i tend to target as i said i'm trying to get the people that are at the top uh, of the game at the moment and uh i just message them and say this is who i am will you come on my podcast please um and so far it's worked you surprised i was surprised um you know what i mean especially i had uh, michael mansfield on as one of my last guests and he's a bit of a living legend and I know how he is he as he's involved in everything um but yeah I was surprised just pick up the phone quick chat yeah I'll come on um it's surprising who you can get on just by asking mm. Mm. well thank you very much for coming on I have I think it would be fair considering we've talked a lot about crimes kind of wrap it up with like a bit of current affairs um how is your work impacted by legal aid you've kind of touched on it throughout the podcast really Uh, and it's something that I think a lot of people when going into crime it's what puts them off I remember we were sent a survey as law students about working with legal aid and whether it was something that we wanted to do and I was honest in the survey and I was like it not really it's kind of quite scary because of depending on how much work you do you could do all the work if you can't make it to court on that day you don't get paid um so how are you finding it um legal aid there's there's no doubt it's tough um i i'm fortunate enough to um i work at a firm that is not just like a specialist legal aid firm it has it's a big corporate outfit so for the past seven or eight years, a lot of the cases I get to run alongside my legal aid cases are privately funded. So I, I get a lot of regulatory cases with frauds, um, people being investigated by different regulators like health and safety executive and all that sort of work is very well paid. And it sort of allows me then to um, spend more time on, on the legal aid 
uh, what, but but it is tough, and especially initially when you set out in legal aid because the lower court stuff and it's not particularly well funded. Um, some of the higher end legal aid cases um, is well funded, um, but you big. It's a weird funding regime. You can have a case that your client's only mentioned 10 times. Um, it's a multi-handed case with 50,000 pages of evidence and you'll, you might have very little to do, but you're going to get paid £100,000 plus and then you'll have a case that um, you'll have to spend hundreds and hundreds of hours that you, you're doing for a few hundred pounds. It's a very strange... Um, way that they calculate how they pay you. But um, I'm hopeful uh, that the government will do something. I know that there's just been a big review um, and I think we'll need to do something because I am now, uh, I'm still in my 30s, but not for long, but I, I am probably still the youngest criminal lawyer in my area. The, the, the regular practices. Everyone I came through with, um, really, I, I see, I still see them, but the, at the CPS or they're doing other things with the different government departments. Um, so there is a huge shortage of people doing this type of work. And I suppose there is an opportunity there for people coming through because the, the, there's very little competition um, and there's a lot of work out there. I mean, it's we, we have cases that we, we have to turn people away sometimes now, which in other areas of law is unheard of. But uh, I have some cases I can't even get barristers for. So there is um, opportunities there and uh, very little competition because no one has been coming into it for the past 10 years. So um, I'm hoping the government will step in and do something. And if they don't, then... No doubt the system will collapse and then we'll have to replace it with something else. But um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose if I was in your shoes, I would still be going into criminal law because I don't want to do any other area of law. Um, and I would try to, you know, I mean, I think legal aid is important because people that need help should get help. But you have to try to do a bit of private pain work, a bit of other stuff to supplement your income. Otherwise, um, it's just not really viable to earn a decent living. Thank you very much. No Thank you for speaking to us today. Um, all of um, Craig's podcast and website will be in the description for anyone that wants to go and have a look as well. Thank you.